Well, when I was a kid, uh, I had an aspiration to fill my father's shoes. And I mean, literally fill my father's shoes. My dad had this pair of really cool boots that he used to call his flying boots that he wore when he rode his motorcycle because they were modelled on the boots that World War II pilots used to wear. So they were these really uh, great shiny black leather boots that came all the way up your calf that were lined with sheepskin. And I thought they were like the coolest thing my dad owned. So I couldn't wait till my feet would fit in them and then I could claim them for myself. And, and, and every now and again I would sneak into his room and pull them out of his cupboard and, and try them on. Um, alas, I'm still waiting to fill my father's shoes. Uh, I'm a size 9 at biggest and he's a size 11. Um, so I, I don't think I'm ever going to. Uh, once it started to become apparent to me through my teenage years that I was never going to be as big as my dad, I started to really detest all those uh, great aunts and those old ladies at afternoon teas who would say things like, oh, you look just like your father. Are you going to grow up to be as tall as him one day? Well, no, I'm not. Thanks for reminding me. Um, I, I'm almost over it now anyway. I, I take no, no perverse pleasure in the fact that my firstborn son is even shorter than me and can go get his own darn boots. Um, well, as we began reading Peter's first letter to the church last week, we, we heard Peter explain the Christian concept of salvation in terms of being born anew as God's children. So born into all the privileges that belong to a son and an heir. And, and so Peter's language of salvation, we've discovered, is family language. Um, and, and, and the great joy of being a Christian is coming into personal relationship with God who himself is characterised by love. He exists in triune relationship, in family, as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Well, today, as Peter goes on to explain this further, he's now going to look at what it means to grow up in the likeness of our Father. So remember, he's speaking to Christians who uh, he's characterised as exiles and foreigners in the culture of their day because having become Christians... They now no longer fit the values and the aspirations of the culture that was their native culture. They have become God's children. And now he's saying the values and aspirations they have uh, should be defined by the very character of God. And that the outward way they should live now should come to resemble the character of their father. Well, Peter could have just said that, of course, and then just got straight on with the business of telling them what that looks like. Do this, don't do that. But actually, he doesn't start there. We don't get to that until later in chapter 2. Um, first, Peter wants to lay a foundation for understanding why we ought to look the way that we do. The other thing we saw last week was, was how the Exodus narrative informs the way that Peter um, describes salvation. God sent Moses as a prophet to contend with Pharaoh for the ownership of his people Israel. Now vital to this story is the fact that God didn't simply send Moses as a prophet to give a word or to give the law. He sent Moses 
to redeem his people from slavery. And only later did God then address the matter of how Israel should live as God's chosen people. Only later did he give them the laws and the customs and the practices that would define them as a distinct people over and against the other peoples of the world and their gods. And Peter's going to continue to, to take us through Exodus as the pattern of what God is doing in the church. And so really central to what Peter talks about today is the fact that God has redeemed us. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Redemption is the key concept defining God's work to give birth to Israel, his people in the Old Testament, and to give birth to us as his children in the New Testament. Metaphor of redemption right at the centre of his own self-understanding of his mission. In Matthew 20, 28, he said this, Son of man did not come to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the Old Testament concept of redemption really has three key overlapping ideas that we need to explore briefly, and Peter knows and utilises all of these ideas. To begin with, redemption is the language of the slave market. So to redeem someone is to pay a ransom price to buy them, and ideally to buy them out of slavery. And so the goal of every slave uh, is that they should be purchased or should be able to purchase themselves out of slavery and become a free person. So very important is the fact that redemption entails rescue from one state and into another state. And in the language of 1 Peter, from slavery and into sonship. Peter knows this when he says, you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. What is it we are redeemed into? Life in God's family. So redemption is change from slavery to freedom. The second concept that's important here is the idea of the ransom, that a price is paid in order to free a slave. Now, theologians through history often get bogged down at this point because the idea of a ransom, of course, is the payment of a price to whatever power is holding a person in captivity, whether they are a slave or, or a kidnapped victim. And so it, it does seem to beg the question, well, to whom then is God paying the ransom? The devil, maybe? But the metaphor of redemption in the Bible never depicts God as paying anyone for his people. Quite the opposite. In fact, the Bible insists that as God is the true creator and Lord of all things, then all things properly belong to him by right. So when God challenges Pharaoh for the ownership of the Israelites, he doesn't pay Pharaoh a ransom, you notice. Quite fact, the opposite. He punishes Pharaoh 
and the Egyptians, and he exacts a price from them, the death of every firstborn in Egypt. Uh, likewise, there is just absolutely nowhere in the Bible where God is depicted as being in competition with the devil for human souls. People, by right, belong to him. Nevertheless, redemption involves a cost. In Egypt, the Israelites were spared the judgment that came upon the land by sacrificing a lamb. They displayed its blood on the doorposts and they were spared. They redeemed their firstborn sons at the cost of a lamb. And, and so was established a very important custom in Israel that thereafter the firstborn of every family, the firstborn of all the livestock, were to be redeemed. They were to be bought back from Yahweh at the cost of a slaughtered lamb. Now that seems to us a very strange idea. Uh, that the life of a lamb somehow should represent the life of a person. It, it seems kind of bloody and, and, and barbaric and, and, and primitive. But the practice of this sacrifice in Israel, particularly the substitution of, the life of an animal for the life of a human, was meant to furnish us with the right kind of concepts to understand what it is that God must ultimately do to save us. Because the sacrificial lambs of Israel find their true meaning in the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood shed in our place. He as our representative. He as our substitute. Our lives purchased at the cost of his life. And the book of Hebrews will go and examine this at length. Hebrews 9.12 not by the means of blood of goats or bulls, but by the means of his own blood, he entered once and for all into the holy place, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So while it didn't cost God anything to redeem Israel from slavery in Egypt, it does cost him everything to redeem humanity from sin. Redemption from Slavery comes at a price. And so the third concept of redemption is the way it thinks about the redeemer, the person who pays the price. Now, this where Peter keeps redemption and new birth closely linked together because the very nature of God, the redeemer, is his character as a father. He acts to redeem us because he us. He identifies us ahead of time as his family members. And that's why in the New Testament, the, when we get the open revelation of God's person in the ministry of Jesus, the prime metaphor that Jesus will use is the metaphor of Father. That's preeminently how we are to explain God. And, and incidentally, this picture of God really stands at the heart of the story of Ruth, if you remember the story of Ruth, um, uh, she is redeemed by Boaz, her kinsman. The poor foreign widow of one of the relatives of Boaz. And he marries her in order to bring her into the family. And the whole point of that story in the life of Israel is to teach Israel that it is God 
who is kinsman redeemer. Their family member who brings them into the family. Now none of us are God's children simply because we're born on this planet. We become God's children because he lays claim to us and because he redeems us through the cross. Otherwise, we would remain slaves. We would be outsiders. And any claim we think we might have on God as his children, apart from the price he's paid for us, would be false. So redemption requires a redeemer, someone who takes us out of slavery and into family. So having understood the concept of redemption, let's come back to what Peter's doing with this in his argument. Um, He's speaking to people who were once, if you like, children of the native culture they had grown up in. But now, having become God's children, they have forsaken the old gods. They have left behind the old morality, the old way of living, the old pattern of life, what he calls the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. And now they've become foreigners to that way of living. Now, Peter's going to tell us a lot more about how as foreigners, they should live in the old culture. But at the minute, Peter's focusing on why they should live differently Jesus' people, and the answer is simple. Children should bear the likeness of their parents. Children should bear the likeness of their parents. So, a quick little Father's Day survey for the parents here. Uh, if, if you're not a parent, I, I, I do apologise. However, I have a strong suspicion you were once a child, so you'll probably still relate to this. Um, which of you as parents, back when you were dealing with your little children, let's say you know lower primary school and younger, found yourself moved to such heights of exasperations that you found yourself saying something as utterly ridiculous as, oh, grow up, or... Stop behaving like a child. Yeah? Oh, good. It's nice to know I'm not the only one found myself, you know, affected by this kind of temporary insanity. Um, it's easy as a parent, isn't it, to become preoccupied with your children's bad behaviour. And, and then when we come to the Bible's metaphor of children, to have the idea of bad behaviour playing over in our minds. So when we hear children, we tend to hear childish, immature, foolish, annoying. You supply the word there. But now I want you to hear something different. When you hear child in the New Testament, hear image bearer. Image bearer. Because the point here is that the child is the image, the representation of their parents. A son in biblical thinking, represents his father. He is in the image of his father. That's why it's so important when the New Testament addresses Christians and calls us sons. Whether you're a, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, you have become an image bearer, a representative of the father. And the whole task of the Christian life then is to mature into the likeness of your father. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. 
And that, of course, was the whole purpose of the law that God gave Israel through Moses. It, it prescribed a way of living um, that was supposed to accurately represent the character of God to the nations round about them. So Israel, having tasted that the Lord is good, is supposed to express that goodness in everything they do as individuals and as a people. And so be holy as I am holy stands at the absolute center of the law that God gave his people. Both being holy in terms of being set apart, set apart from the prevailing culture, identifying yourself with the Lord God and not with the other gods of the other cultures, and also being holy in terms of a, a standard of absolute morality and absolute right and wrong that was based in God's character. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. So this is entirely the issue that Peter's going to unpack for us as we get through chapter 2. And, and we'll have opportunity to think about what does that look like in practice. But for the moment, Peter focuses on the central attribute that God's children have as image bearers. And that is love. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, in other words, now that you have been set apart by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply and from the heart, because you have been born again. 1 Peter 2.1 Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Now, I put it to you that it's very difficult to be deceitful, uh, hypocritical, to be envious, to, to slander anyone or, or to have malice if, in fact, you are um, a, a sole survivor on a deserted island. You can't do any of those things on your own. The sole survivor on a deserted island is possibly the most virtuous person on the planet. And this is one of the reasons that the monks in medieval times um, disappeared out to live on their own. And even in community uh, lived a fairly isolated existence. It's a lot harder to sin. One of the great rules of St. Benedict um, dictated silence through much of the working day. And thus sparing people many opportunities for temptation. However, our problem, of course, is... We're not called to live alone. Living alone is not God's choice for us. That's why we're placed into families, uh, born into communities, into people groups and nations. That's why as Christians we are born into a community. Because God himself is a community, then true humanity in God's image is always going to be worked out in relationship with other people. Christian behaviour... Christian morality, as we're going to find out in 1 Peter, is always worked out in the community of the saints. Well, at this point, um, I must confess, I'm not a big fan of Father's Day sermons. I, I wasn't asked to give one, and I didn't actually set out to write a Father's Day sermon today. It just kind of so happened, by God's grace, that today's topic 
just landed on that space. Um, but as it is Father's Day, uh, I thought we should acknowledge that there are probably many of us for whom this is a difficult day, that there are many people around about us who have experienced great misfortune or even trauma as children and for whom the idea of growing up into the image of your father uh, doesn't seem very relatable. Uh, all of us know, though, uh, that there are no perfect parents. And I didn't realise that until I actually became one myself. It would be important, though, for us to say two things about growing up into the image of our father. The first is that in Christ, our childhood experiences don't define us. Psalm 27, 10 and verse 13. Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, I don't wish to minimise anyone's traumatic childhood experiences for a moment, and I certainly don't intend to trivialise them with religious platitudes, but nor should we trivialise the redemption that God has wrought for us at cost to himself through his own son's blood to redeem us. That Jesus has entered into our broken experience in order that he might bring us out of that and into the fullness of being God's children. And that isn't a matter of opinion or subjective feeling. That's a solid fact, as immovable as the resurrection itself. And that means we no longer view ourselves in the same way anymore. I am not simply the product of my parents. I am not simply shaped or even misshaped in their image. The ultimate purpose of God's gift of life to me is that I should be shaped into his image. My true destination is to be his child and no one else's. Nor, for that matter, should we continue to hold our parents' sins against them. Because of Christ, I can and I ought to forgive. And I can and ought to give thanks to God for the life that my parents gave me. Because it was ultimately his gift to me through them. I mean, he's never promised us a life free from pain or suffering. He does promise us a life coming that is free from pain and sorrow. So forgive, and as far as it is possible for you, be reconciled to your parents. Be reconciled to your children. Because you belong to Jesus now. And their acceptance or rejection of you is no longer the definitive thing. God's acceptance is. I am not in the image of my earthly parents. The second thing we should say about growing up in God's image, growing up in the image of our Father, is that in Christ, we should not let our childhood experiences define who we think God is. The argument against putting your faith in God because your own father was an abusive tyrant 
does seem from an emotional and a psychological point of view a very powerful argument, but when you start to look at it more closely, it's not a particularly rational argument. And in fact, it's simply uh, another cover for sinfully rejecting God. Because how would you know that your father or your mother was bad unless you had some standard to judge them by? You know, after all, nobody complains that their steamroller doesn't drive fast enough. It's the nature of a steamroller to drive slow. Uh, it wasn't designed to race in a Grand Prix. But if your Ferrari doesn't get above 30 kilometres an hour, you have a real reason to complain because you know it was designed for something better. Similarly, if were meant to be tyrants, then we would have no cause to complain about them. But of course, complaints about them reflect the fact that we know better. We intrinsically understand, even from looking at nature, that parents ought to nurture and protect their children, not use and abuse them. So the standard by which we judge our parents is in fact God. But we don't judge God by the standard of our parents. God doesn't identify himself with a metaphor of father because he thinks that humans are, make such wonderful parents that he ought to imitate them. It's quite the other way around. God is by nature of being Trinity, father. And he has embedded that experience into our existence by making us male and female and giving us the job of parenting as well. So we should be very careful then what we mean or what we think when we call God Father. Because if we come to this with the image of an impatient and exacting parent who really waits to condemn each child and loves to disinherit his children, then we will naturally see God as the parent who is impossible to please. And we'll see his commands as unreasonable and punitive. And then the goal of all our preaching and all our action becomes simply try harder. And the result of that will either be despair and guilt without any meaningful change or, perhaps worse still, change that is that's accompanied by terrible pride as we imagine we've done it by our own efforts. And it would be easy to read this, make this mistake when we read 1 Peter 1.17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. We're liable to hear that and unstitch everything that Peter has been sewing together about the nature of God as a father. We're liable to listen to that verse and in our brain, hear things like, well, since God is impossible to please, be afraid, be very afraid. Or the more obscene statement, look busy, Jesus is coming. You know, if you live with that point of view, or from that point of view, then all your actions are simply carefully 
calculated movements designed to protect yourself against an unworthy father. And that's what motivates the slave. Fear. But Peter isn't talking about fear here. He's talking about the awe and respect that you have for an impressive father. In fact, he's talking about the kind of awe and respect that most young kids have for their fathers and for their parents until they grow up and become big enough to realize that mum and dad don't actually have it all together. That's the kind of awe he's talking about. Jesus was asked in John 6, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Now don't forget he was being asked by Jewish listeners who knew fully well what Moses had laid out in the law for them. Behind their question was the assumption God is impossible to please. Jesus' reply is really important. The work of God is this. To believe, that is to trust, the one he has sent. There's an enormous freedom in that passage. An enormous lifting of a burden from our shoulders. See, God is not the absent or the emotionally distant kind of father that our very English kind of culture is just far too uh, familiar with. In fact, the biblical portrayal of father is very different. In the Bible, God is the constantly present and constantly engaged father. And again, if we dip back in the book of Ruth, that's the picture we get of God in the person of Boaz. Because before Ruth became his wife, he treated her as a member of the extended family as his daughter. And he was concerned about her. He was protective of her. He was inviting. He was encouraging. And he provided for her and blessed her at cost to himself. Before he became a husband, he demonstrated that he was excellent husband material by being an excellent husband. Father, if God is like Boaz, and that is the point of the story, then he's a father who delights to give birth to children and delights to give them an inheritance. He is the father who pays a costly ransom to buy us into freedom so that we would no longer be slaves again to fear. And if we see ourselves and understand ourselves in this light now, then we know ourselves to be safe beyond all condemnation. We know ourselves to be loved and wanted children, delighted in, in Christ. Only then, only in that freedom, will we have freedom to live the life that God desires us to live as his children. Only out of such a freedom... Can you possibly love your neighbor and love the Lord your God? Because the goal of, of a child who is free in that way is to please their, their father, to please their parents, because that's what a child most delights to do. Peter concludes his letter, Peace to all of you 
who are in Christ. Amen.